right, good morning, church. Good to see you all. Welcome, everybody, joining us online as well. Before we get into it, I want to make a couple of quick announcements. Number one, if you would please be praying for the group that is in Mexico right now, and they are building a home for a family in need. They come back this afternoon. I know they're finishing things up, so they would really appreciate your prayers while they are there. And then secondly, guys, this Saturday is going to be our biggest outreach event ever. Treat Street is going to be Saturday night, and here's the deal. It's already kind of blowing up on social media in ways that it didn't last year, and last year we had upwards of 3,000 people. So what that means is help? No. Um, it's going to be awesome. So we have lots of candy. Thank you for your generosity in donating all the candy. We're good with that. We could use a few more cars to wrap around the lot. But most importantly, on your way out, grab one of those little invites. It looks like a ticket. You don't need a ticket to come, but it's got a little QR code on it. Gives you a little bit more information about that. That's to hand to your friends and your family. Uh, it's, it's going to be an amazing event. And again, the reason why we do this is it just fits in line with who we are and what God has called us to be. You've heard me say many times, those aren't just words on the wall, beyond our walls. We want to be a gift to our city. And so this is one of the ways that we do it by providing uh, Treat Street this Saturday. So I mentioned a couple weeks ago that we are stepping out of our series in Genesis and we're revisiting the future vision of the church, which we rolled out last year at this time. I'll be speaking more about this again this next, uh, next Sunday, and then we'll jump back into our Genesis series. But we thought it was important, especially because so many of you are new to the church within the last year. So three words that we use to describe the future vision of the church, bigger, smaller, deeper. Bigger stands for, well, we just believe what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16. He said, I'm going to build my church and nothing's going to stop it, not even the powers of darkness. The gates of hell will not prevail against her. So we would expect the church to grow. And as I mentioned, by the grace of God, over the last year, our attendance is, is way up in adults, children, and youth. And, and it's all about really growing bigger. But at the same time, it's really all about growing smaller. Because as you come to a place as the church grows larger, you can become anonymous. And we don't want that for you. We weren't meant to live life in isolation. That's why we're always talking about getting involved in smaller communities. Because that's the kind of spiritual soil that allows your spiritual roots to grow deeper. It's the place where you can know others and be known and practice the one another's that the Bible talks about. Those are the things that give you life. In the end, I guess the ultimate goal came from Jesus himself in Matthew 28. As he is about to leave, the dying man's words are among his most important. He looks at his followers and he says, here's your charge, Christians. Make disciples. Share with them the message of the cross. Baptize them. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded. I'm super stoked this morning, and I'm going to cut my time a little short because I want to make time for the folks that are going to be baptized. Some really special people are going to be sharing their stories. And it just so happens that today we are, uh, we are baptizing 14 people total between the two services, and that's more than we baptized ever, guys. And so it's been cool, super appreciative of the people that are making that step and being that example. So, of course, for all this to happen, as you know, it takes our time, our treasure, our talents, it takes more time in terms of people volunteering and serving. Uh, those that are coming through our doors, it's our talents, it's the gifts that God has given us, the passions that he lays on our hearts, and our treasures, the resources that God has put into our hands. Now, if you know anything about our church, we don't often talk about this. We certainly don't talk about it as much as Jesus talked about it. If I talked about resources like this as much as Jesus talked about it, half the church would be gone in about three weeks, Okay. <laughs> One of Jesus' favorite topics was actually, what's in your hands? 
What's in your hands? Uh, why do you think that is? Why was he so fixated on it? Well, in one sentence, he tells you why, and he kind of presses right in on the heart of the matter. And he says this in Matthew chapter 6, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus gave some really powerful sermons about money, finances, wealth, but never once afterward did he say to the guys, man, I just crushed it with that message. Now pass the plate. Jesus wasn't into like, you know, prosperity doctrine or prosperity gospel. He really, he really wasn't into that. In this encounter with the rich young ruler, Jesus essentially calls him out for what he owns. And the guy's kind of stunned. He's like, okay, well, well, what's going on there? Well, Jesus just mentioned it. Where your treasure is, your heart is. Because in the end, it's not really about the money. It's about your heart. And here's the harsh reality, okay, if you're willing to admit it, here's how it works in life. Your money follows your heart, and your heart follows your money. In other words, you spend on the things you are affectionate about. And so in this sense, it, it's actually a great indicator of what's really going on inside you because it's one of those things that you just have a tendency to want to control. Now, having said that, let me say this. Things are expensive right now. You guys notice that? Things are expensive. It's like the cost of everything has gone up. It's like overnight, the dollar store became the $10 store, <laughs> right? And if you like that, hey, there is, one, there is one item that has not seen a price increase. Man, you guys are so on it. <laughs> the hot dog and Pepsi at Costco. <laughs> Still a buck 50. You heard it from me first. If the price of that goes up, Jesus might come back, okay? <laughs> Jesus is going to be like, oh, it's time. <laughs> so it's been really difficult for a lot of people, really difficult, right? Just trying to make ends meet. And so we want to help. You'll notice there's a little blue flyer on the seat that's around you. We have a Financial Peace University class because sometimes you feel like, my gosh, what am I gonna do? How am I gonna handle this? I need some help. There's no shame in that. There's no shame in that. It's usually 11 week, 12 week class. We've condensed it into four weeks starting two weeks from now. There's more information on that little flyer. In addition to that, we've worked out a deal with the Ramsey organization and for everybody in the church, for your friends and your family, we have one year of free access to all of their online resources as well. So that's something you can give to those that you might think need it, or if you want to access it yourself. Again, more information is on that little sheet. We want you to know that we want to help you in that way. It's there for you. Any other questions about that? Or if there are other needs that you have, please contact us personally. So. What I'm gonna do this morning is I'm just gonna take a few minutes and I'm, I'm gonna walk us through a couple of really cool passages that actually speak about a generous church. And this is super fun for me. 
And the reason why it's fun for me is because of who you are. Because of who you are. It's an example of a generous church, and when I read about it, I'm reminded of you. Because you all have been incredibly gracious with your resources toward your church. And I've said it before, I'll say it now. On behalf of all of the people, literally the thousands of people in the last few years since we've been around, on behalf of them, on behalf of all of the fruit that has been produced, on their behalf, I wanna say thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness in doing that. So there's more for us to do. I'm gonna talk more of the details and specifics next week, not just me, but some others as well. Gonna lay out some of the blueprints for you because of your generosity, incredible generosity. As you know, we were able to purchase this building a year ago, and now we want to do what it takes to make this our home so that the ministry environment can thrive. So let me give you some backdrop real quick is before we read uh, some of these verses together. Essentially what's happening is the Apostle Paul is writing to a church in the city of Corinth. And if you know anything about the city of Corinth back in the day in the first century AD, it was jacked up, it was messed up. Archaeologists have discovered these little stamps, impressions on the sidewalk that literally point you to whatever vice you might want. Like if this is your particular vice, if this is your disposition, follow these stamps, right? It's like this will lead you to the house of whatever, where you can, have, you know, you can immediately gratify whatever urge you might have. That was in the city of Corinth. It was well-known, well-practiced. In fact, the Greek verb korinthadzai came to describe somebody that lived uh, a, 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 essentially a lifestyle wherein he or she did whatever they wanted to do. That was the Corinthadzai. That was named after the city of Corinth. So what's really interesting is that there's this fledgling group of people who believed that Jesus is who he said he was, that he's the Messiah. The resurrection lit the flames of Christianity. People were kind of like out of their minds because it's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Word is starting to spread and we can't find the body of Jesus, even though the tomb was guarded, and it's all this information that they had to deal with, and all of a sudden people are like, man, this guy did what he said he was gonna do. As I've said many times, there is a reason why Christianity is a thing, why it exists. There's only one logical reason, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how the church got off the ground. So there's this little church in the city of Corinth, and they hear about a need that's represented in a faraway place in Jerusalem. Now what's really, really interesting about this is that they hear of this, this sister church, and the sister church is very unlike them in a very significant way. It's made up of Jews who embrace Jesus as the Messiah. The church in Corinth was a straight-up Gentile church. Well, the Gentile church hears that this Jewish church, believing in the same Jesus, recognizing their sinners separated from God. There's a famine in Jerusalem. There's like a food shortage. There's a real supply chain issue. They can't eat. So the church in Corinth hears about it, and they want to give. They want to help support the work of God in another place. And uh, Paul writes to them, and he explains the situation. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. That would be the church in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. By the way, the church in Philippi, Philippi was known as a very wealthy city, lots of gold, 
uh, natural springs, great place to live. A very prestigious school of medicine was in the city of Philippi in the first century. Some people think that one of the uh, New Testament writers, Luke, as a physician, may have attended that school. The challenge is that wealth did not end up in the church's hands, as you'll see. Keep reading. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and out of their extreme poverty. So they have this joy and this poverty and it resulted in this overflowing of a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And he says, we, they did this not as we expected, but they, this is the key, by the way. If you want to be generous, they gave themselves first to the Lord. In other words, they realized this is a hard issue. Ultimately, this is between me and God because the way I spend my money is actually an indicator of my affections for God. And then by the will of God, they gave to us. He continues in uh, chapter 9, verse 6. He says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of a sense of guilt or compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. And know this about God. He is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, God has distributed freely. He gives to the poor. And one of the ways he gives to the poor is by using the resources of his people. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So maybe some of you may have been raised in a church where they teach the tithe, and the tithe means tenth, one-tenth. But what's interesting is that there are actually three tithes collected. There was one for the poor, one for the priests, and one for the festivals. And in total, it amounted to about one-fourth of a person's income. On top of that, there was free will uh, offerings. And then they had this thing called first fruits, which meant you gave the best and the first of the crop. Now, what's significant about that? Well, that meant you were really trusting for God to provide because you weren't sure that the next crop was going to produce. So by giving to God from your first crop, you're saying, all right, God, I know that you got me. I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to trust that you will provide for me. I'm going to give you first fruits and the best fruits. So all of this is an indicator of where the person's heart would be in terms of how they respond. So there's three principles, though, that Paul lays out in this. And first, notice he says that these people actually gave out of their poverty which meant it was sacrificial. In other words, it kind of hurt a little bit. So let me read you a quote from C.S. Lewis who has the, this, this way of just wrecking you with half the things that he says, okay? He says, if our giving habits do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say that they are too small. There ought to be things we want to do, but we cannot do because our giving expenditures exclude them. So, one of the things that became radical about Christian generosity is that it brought Gentiles and Jews together. And, and I, I, it's hard for me to explain how radical this was. What brought unity to these early believers who were coming from such diverse backgrounds? Well, God impressed upon their hearts this concept of being generous with what he had given to them. And where it started was within the church. Gentile and Jew. They hated, in any other context in the world at that time, they didn't associate with each other. They looked at, at each other as being dirty and filthy. They would go out of their way to avoid each other. 
But then Jesus comes into the picture. Jesus is the great unifier of all humanity. Because, see, this is the beautiful thing about the cross. At the foot of the cross, every person is there exposed as a sinner in need of a savior, period. Jew and Gentile coming together, one being generous toward the other, and the world has never seen anything like it. And then there's this, there's this example of them actually giving sacrificially. So this is kind of interesting to think through, and it's really, really tough, and this is where it becomes an issue of the heart. And... It's not often that we have these conversations with ourselves and God. So the question that is being asked of us now is, what, what does it mean for me to give sacrificially in light of what God has entrusted to me? In other words, what is my responsibility? So I'll just give you an example. Let's say, for example, if, if you're a, a single parent, you've got three kids, you, you're just, you've got a part-time job, that sacrifice is being asked of everyone. Because in the end, it's not an equal gift, but what the scriptures are pressing in on is equal sacrifice. Because you sacrifice for what you love. We know this to be true in human relationships. Think about the people in your life that you love the most. Oh, you're willing to hemorrhage for them. So do you understand why Jesus says, where your treasure is, your heart is. Jesus isn't about, it's not like Jesus had this massive debt and he needed to relieve his debt collection. It wasn't about the money. It was about the heart. So in this interaction with the rich young ruler, he presses in on the money. And if it would have been some other issue that captured his heart, then Jesus would have spoke to that. So all of a sudden now, from the Christian perspective, this issue of sacrificial giving becomes a reality because this is the kind of thing. See, in the first century AD, Christians were so different. It's like they were in the city of Corinth, but they were pure. It's like the Christian husbands love their wives. Christian wives love their husbands, and they, they love their kids, and it was pretty common for a dude to have, essentially, other women in his life. That was not uncommon in the first century AD, the Roman world. It was perfectly acceptable to have women on the side. And yet in the Christian community, they're coming on, they're like, no, 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 that's not how God created it to be. We love our wives and we're faithful to our wives. We love our kids and we want to be an example to our kids. So all these things made Christians stand out, not only in terms of their lifestyle, but what they did with the money that they had. So these are really important questions for us to ask because these are, these are questions of the heart. Secondly, he says, um, you know, you should be happy about giving. Why? How can you be happy about giving your money away? Here's why. Because it's actually an expression of your love for God. That's, what, that, that's where the joy comes from. And again, there's so much more going on here than you realize because for the Gentiles to happily give to uh, Jewish Christians, uh, was, it was just absolutely radical. It's also proportional. In other words, you give according to what has been entrusted to you. So that's the question, right? In light of what God has given to me, what is my responsibility in return? Now, one other thing I want to mention, because he says something that's really, really profound, and it hits home. Verse 10, he says, he who supplies seed to the sower, that's God. And if you have any kind of seed at all, that means you're the sower. So God's, God gives you, God supplies seed for the sower. And he also gives you bread for food. You can't live without eating, so God provides what you need to live. He provides the bread for food. And then he will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So let me explain what he's saying. He's saying, like, God entrusts you with seed. And so you sow that seed, and you reap the crop, 
and you make some bread, and you use that bread to feed yourself. That's great. Here's the problem. Some people are sowing seed, and they're growing bread, and they've got a lot of bread, way more than what they could eat. Why do you think that is? Well, the text tells you. So that your righteousness can increase. God gives you more than what you need so that you can be generous with it towards others. But here's the problem. We have so much bread in front of us, and we just keep eating it, and we keep eating it, and we keep eating it, and we make ourselves bigger and bigger and bigger, and God's going, time out. That's not why I gave it to you. I gave you enough to feed yourself, but what I want to increase is not the amount of bread you stuff in your face. Notice what the text says. What I want to increase is the acts of righteousness. Righteousness means right deeds, good deeds. Use what you have to be a blessing to bless other people. That's why God gives it to you. So now, as an example to the Corinthian church, he writes about another church, and this is the church in Philippi. Let me give you a quick background, because this is where the Apostle Paul, he's been away from this congregation. He actually built this church himself. He planted it. He was a church planter. From one church planter to another, got to bow down to the guy, because Paul was a church-planting beast, planted so many churches. He's been away. When you're a church planter, man, you have a special affection. You know what I'm saying? You have a special affection for the church. So I feel what Paul feels in this. He's been away for four years because he's in prison. And in Roman prisons, they had no obligation to keep you alive. They did not have to feed you, clothe you, keep you warm. You stayed alive because of your contacts on the outside, which is a little bit of a problem for Paul because he's a Christian, he's a missionary. He doesn't have, he was a tent maker by trade, but this guy doesn't have a lot of bread to feed himself. And at this point, without a job, it's a desperate situation. We actually have this letter, Philippi, Philippians, because of the generosity of Christians. So here's what he says. He says to them, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you didn't have the opportunity to help me in my need. Then he says this, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty, because there are some temptations when you have a lot. There are temptations there. And I also know what it's like to be hungry, abundance, and need. And then the famous verse, right, Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know that verse is in the context of physical need. Uh, so... Uh, here's what he's saying. I know how to survive in abundant times and in lean times. And there's a secret. He actually uses the word secret. And he reveals what that secret is. If you read the text carefully, he tells you what the secret is. Anybody pick up on it? It's a word in the text that starts with a C. Huh? That's it. Content. How do you survive in a time of need? Because you've learned to be content. Let me say a quick word. Compared to most people that live on the planet, we are the wealthy. 
if you have food in the fridge, if you're not worried about where your, where your next meal comes from, uh, the fact that you live in the United States actually sets you on some next level prosperity. In this room, I would imagine by and large, by and large, even for those who would be struggling in our terms, are probably among the world's elite rich, among the world's elite rich. What does it mean to be content? And what is the opposite? The opposite of being content is to be covet, covetousness, right? It covets what other people have. And this is such a part of human nature because we always want what we don't have. And I'm convinced that you cannot be generous without being content because if you're not content, you will covet. And when you covet things, here's the problem. It misdirects your money toward things that God never intended for you to have. Let me say it again. If you have a heart that's filled with this de desire for more and more and you covet things, see, coveting is different than jealousy. Jealousy is like, um, oh, I wish I had that. But if you covet something, it's I wish I had that and I wish you didn't. There's an attitude behind coveting. That's why it's especially gnarly. It's like you really, really want something so bad that you don't even want other people to have it until you have it first and you have more of it. That will kill your generosity. So that's why this, the Bible is so relevant. You can't be generous unless you are content. So here's the question. Are you content? If not, here's what I would submit to you. It's possible that your money is controlling you rather than you control your money. That's why I say there's no shame in saying, hey, I need some help. So I want to end by saying, you know, I want to make one thing really, really clear. Uh, we all need to be good stewards with what God has entrusted to us, but and we need to be thoughtful about what we're generous with and what we give to. But this is just as much what you're giving from as anything. And that's a heart issue. And the way we spend our money is a tremendous indicator of our hearts for God. That's what the scriptures tell us. So I was, after the first service, a couple of people come up to me and they're like, Are you, do you ever get nervous talking about this stuff? And it's like, I know we never talk about it. We don't pass the play. We don't do any of that stuff. We, we hardly ever talk about money. And, and I, I said, Here, here's, here's the thing. A greater fear drives out a lesser fear. Here's the greatest, greater fear that I have, all right? You wanna know what it is? For people that call Illuminate Community Church their home church, when you see Jesus face to face, and he says, hey, let's talk about your generosity. If you dare say, I didn't know what the Bible said and I attended Illuminate, that's on you. <laughs> see what I'm saying? I don't want you to say, well, hey, I didn't know what the Bible taught about generosity and contentment. I didn't know what, I didn't know what the scripture said. This is what the scriptures teach, and here, here's the reason why. Because God wants your heart. So now every person kind of has to wrestle with this, this issue, and, and it's like, how am I supporting the mission of my church, the mission of Jesus, the spreading of the gospel? We are called to make disciples, to baptize, teach people to command all that Jesus said. So that's where I'm gonna stop, because we have some awesome people whose lives have been transformed by the power of God, and we get to hear those Testimonies, because when all is said and done, that's, that's really what it's about. When I die, I want to take as many people to heaven with me as possible. Next week, I'm going to share some of the details in terms of our plans for this building. I'm going to walk you through it, 
And, uh, but that's then. For now, let me pray. Father, Lord, um, you know, from my own heart, I am appreciative of these words because they're really challenging. And Lord, we want to express how much we value you and ultimately what you've done for us, transferring us from death to life. And anything that we give is really coming to us from your hands and you own it all anyways. Father, I'm so thankful for the generosity of these people, for the ministry that takes place. We pray for all those that are going to be in our campus this Saturday. God, pray that they would sense the spirit of your people and that they would be drawn to it. I thank you for these people that are about to share, for their courage and their boldness and their example, Lord. Pray for a special blessing upon them. All for your glory, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.